Hello and welcome in to the first podcast episode in a series of what I hope will turn into many episodes here at Big Ten Network. My name is Alex Rue of BTN.com, and I'm very excited to have the opportunity to launch and host a podcast that is designed to be a series of entertaining discussions and interviews with a variety of personalities affiliated with the Big Ten Conference. In the coming weeks and months as we get rolling here, I'm planning on talking to both former and current Big Ten athletes and coaches, as well as prominent media members who have unique insight into Big Ten sports. So a podcast is something BTN hasn't really pursued recently, but it's obviously a medium that is wildly popular, especially in the world of sports talk. So I'm optimistic that fans out there will enjoy this latest avenue we're providing at BTN to help you connect to your favorite schools, because I know I'll enjoy trying to facilitate a discussion that hopefully will be fun for everyone involved. We're going to try to make these as easy to find as possible by putting them out on Facebook and Twitter and through iTunes and SoundCloud. And before we get into our first segment with our first guest, I want to thank the talented people at BTN who have made this podcast possible. To Chris Malcolm and Jordan Mallet for helping me get it off the ground, to my colleague Brent Urena for his Big Ten wisdom, and of course, Wes White for his production skills. So let's get into our first interview with our first guest, Nicole Auerbach of USA Today. As a reporter covering college football and basketball for the entire country and a regular college football contributor on our BTN airwaves, Nicole has a fantastic perspective on the national college sports landscape. Plus, she's a 2011 Michigan grad, so she has some stories from her time covering sports in Ann Arbor that I think both Wolverines fans and aspiring young journalists will find to be very interesting. We get into how she got such a prominent national role so soon in her career, what it's like to be one of few women covering college football, Michigan's groundbreaking trip to Rome, and uh, many other subjects as well, including her celebrity doppelganger, which is a Parks and Rec character that you may recognize. So, all right, let's get this thing rolling. The first BTN podcast interview starts now. excited to welcome Nicole Auerbach to the show. Nicole covers college football and basketball for USA Today and has been a regular on-air contributor for us here at Big Ten Network as well. You can find her work in USA Today and at usatoday.com, and you can follow her on Twitter at Nicole Auerbach. How's it going, Nicole? Things are good. Enjoying the off-season. How about you? Things are great, and uh, I appreciate you joining me here. And uh, I assume you're pretty busy most of the year having to cover college football and basketball coast to coast, but uh, like you said, it's the off season. Have things kind of slowed down now for you personally? Yeah, a little bit. Um, last summer was, was nuts. I had um, the Olympics, so there was a lot of like pre-Olympic lead-up stuff and some college football to get ahead of, and then it was in Rio for almost three weeks, so this summer is like kind of like so quiet so far without all that that I actually don't know what to do with my free time. So um, I'm trying to figure out things to do to, uh, to plug that time. Did you have any crazy Rio stories? Was it as bad as uh, the, some of the media made it out to be? No, I was not in any of the buses where there was, like, gunshots and rocks and all that stuff thrown. Um, I, was, I was pretty much I was at the swimming venue the whole time. So there was some pretty great swimming. had, like, a random Cold War, Russian-American rivalry thing going on. Um, and then I had to deal with the Ryan Lochte. Uh, fallout for the second week so nothing crazy personally although I did pretty much subsist off of Doritos for about two weeks which is I would not recommend as a healthy diet. (laughs) That's good that you avoided uh, the the gunshots on the bus and and all that but um, you're you're in New York City now correct is that that where you work out? Mm -hmm. Yep. So since you're there I have to ask has anyone on the street uh, ever mistaken you for for Aubrey Plaza from Parks and Recreation? (laughs) No, but I actually did have someone do it on a, on a plane once, like getting off the plane. Are you that girl from the television show? And I was like, 
do you mean Parks and Rec? And they're like, yes. I was like, no, but don't worry. I get it a lot. So I should have gone with it, really. And next time it happens, I promise I'll just, like, go with it. <laughs> yeah, because as, as people uh, who are familiar with your work or follow you on Twitter know, I mean, you really do look a lot like April Ludgate from, from Parks and Rec, and, uh, and you really seem to own it, cause, which I think, <laughs> yeah. is, I think is great because I'm a, uh, I'm a big Parks and Rec fan. And um, actually, I went to Illinois, and Nick Offerman, who, uh, who plays Ron Swanson, obviously, on that show, is scheduled to be our commencement speaker at the upcoming graduation. So I'm a little jealous. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I'm a little jealous. Uh, definitely a cool thing. But um, whoever we had as our speaker last year didn't really interest me, so I didn't go. But uh, <laughs> if I was there this year, I, I definitely would have to check out Ron Swanson. Yeah, no, it's a good doppelganger to have because, like, it's a great show. She's very funny and sarcastic. And she's also gone on to do, like, some pretty funny roles. So, like, there's always a plethora of, like, of, like, Internet content that I can, like, use and make fun of myself and pretend that I am in. Like, she was in um, Drunk History for, like, Hamilton as Aaron Burr. So there were all these, like, revolutionary war-type images and gifts and things of her. And I was like, I'm going to own all of this. It's going to be great. So... It's been very entertaining. I entertain myself with it, and also I think some of my Twitter followers. <laughs> That's awesome, yeah. And being in, in New York, and like by NBC and all that, I figured you might get it sometimes, but uh, on the plane, that, that, that's pretty good. So. Yep. Um, so anyway, getting into your background a little bit, um, you, you went to Michigan, correct? Yep. And you must have made uh, quite the impression there as a, as a sports writer. Um, you won a uh, pretty prestigious award from the Big Ten Conference, and... Uh, Looking at your bio, though, it says you were a public policy major, not not in journalism. So I am curious, what made you want to be a sports writer, and how did you kind of grow, grow into that role at Michigan? Yeah, well, actually, you know, Michigan doesn't have a journalism major or a journalism school. Um, and if I had known that this is what I was going to go into, I probably would have gone somewhere else um, that had those things. Um, but, you know, I was, I'm from New Jersey, and I had my aunt and uncle lived in Ann Arbor, so they convinced me to at least apply to Michigan, come visit them. Uh, check it out. And so kind of by the end when, you know, you're making a college decision, I wanted a community, I wanted the school spirit, I wanted sports and academics and all that. So I decided to go, you know, really far from home and and give it a shot. But I figured, I was very math and science-y in high school, and I figured that I would go into business. Um, So, but I'm talking to a girl my freshman year, you know, first week of school, moving into my dorm room, um, talking to the girl across the hall about her dream jobs. And she was actually a sophomore, so she had years of you know, wisdom on me, and she was talking about wanting to be a surgeon, and I said, you know, my dream job would be to write for Sports Illustrated, and she says, oh, you know, like, my best friend works for the Michigan Daily, it's the student newspaper here, like, I'll get get an email address for you, and you can go to, like, a sports meeting, and I hadn't really made the connection, you know, that I could just do that, um, and, and try, so, so I did, and, um, and I went to the meeting, it was actually the, my first football game at Michigan was Appalachian State, so I go to my first ever meeting at the Daily the day after that, and they're kind of scrapping this whole, you know, kind of season kickoff issue because, you know, they lost and they figure out how they're going to write about what just happened. And, um, and, and so, you know, then, you know, it happens. You make friends. You start doing something. You get a little bit better at it. Um, and kind of went from there. And, and I, when I really realized that, like, this is something I wanted to do or at least try, was um, that summer after my freshman year, I was interning at the Trentonian, which is this newspaper um, about an hour from where I'm from in New Jersey. And 
so it was an unpaid internship, and it was a lot of, like, Little League softball, Little League baseball, uh, drag racing, some minor league baseball. The Yankees minor league team is in Trenton. And all that, you know, it's all nights and weekends. And at that point, you know, all my friends from home are, you know, still working, like, at restaurants or the mall, wherever, and they have more normal schedules, and they don't understand I'm never available. Um, but I'm realizing I'm doing it every day, and I'm realizing how much I enjoy it, how it doesn't really feel like work, and I'm really, you know, missing out on other stuff, and, and I, I could see myself doing this. So I kind of go from there and, and decide to, like, you know, really work towards, you know, other internships and writing opportunities, um, you know, go from there. And then public policy was, I just, I thought I was going to major in political science. I, at that point, you know, I was enjoying writing so much, and I liked history, um, and Michigan has this amazing small school within the big school, um, Ford School of Public Policy. So I, so I get it, got into that, and it was like a 50-person graduating class, and like it was just kind of, kind of perfect um, and offset, you know, the sport, the unofficial double major of like working for the Daily and covering sports. Um, and yeah, it just it all went from there. And then the funny part about all of this is, I told you there was that girl who was across the hall from me, who like kind of like told, you know, was like, oh, why don't you write for the paper? I was actually in Ann Arbor um, a couple weeks ago for my little brother's graduation, and I'm in the big house. It's a big ceremony. I'm freezing cold. It was like 40 degrees, and I see this girl, and she's walking upstairs, and we like they haven't kept in touch since college. And I'm like, Alessandra? And she's like, Nicole. And she's there because her mom is getting a master's degree, and I'm there to watch my brother graduate, and it was just such a small world. And I, like, I was like, I was just like, I wonder if she knows that I tell this story all the time about how she, like, encouraged me to get into sports writing. Um, but it was just so random in such a small world. Yeah, it's pretty amazing how it all came full circle for sure. Um, and it also is ironic kind of that that Appalachian State game was one of the first games on Big Ten Network, I believe. And the first game. Yeah, the first game, and it, yeah. and it put – Big Ten Network kind of on the map at a time when a lot of people didn't really have the channel or know what it was. So it's funny that a, a Michigan loss, kind of an epic loss, put the uh, put the network on a on a map and kind of launched it. Um, but also, you were there during some kind of uh, transition years for the Michigan football program. Uh, it was, I think, it was right after when uh, Lloyd Carr left. So yep. uh, it's kind of unusual for Michigan to be down like that. Did you think it was harder to stand out? at a time like that as a reporter when the team was struggling and fans might have had a little less interest in the program? Oh, no, I don't think so. I mean, I was there, so my freshman year was Lloyd Carr's last year, and then it was the three years of Rich Rod. And um, I just think that, you know, and I said this before, and I've, I've given advice to other student writers too, there are certain places that there is just a ton of interest when they're good or bad. And when Michigan is not good, there people care, and people want to read about it. People want to figure out why. People want to figure out what's next, who's next, um, who's to blame. And, you know, there were also NCAA violations going on. So I was covering press conferences and kind of covering more hard news than I was, you know, that I might have otherwise. If you're, you know, you're just kind of coasting through season and the team's going to, like, go play in the Rose Bowl right. or something and things are good. Um, so I think it was actually really interesting to cover it during that stretch because there was a lot of national attention. I was able to build relationships with a lot of national writers who I'm still friends with to this day because they were coming to Michigan to write about, you know, Rich Rod's beginning and then when he's on the hot seat, um, different things like that, and then all or Denard Robinson's rise. And, you know, and then also about they want to keep up with me on Twitter or whatever based on, you know, to see what's happening with the NCAA case. And so there was just so much different things going on um, that I think there was always a spotlight on the program. And, you know, I think that 
not that that necessarily helps. Because, I mean, you know, I think the great thing about Michigan is, like, learning how to be a journalist, because we didn't have a journalism school, was, you know, you're learning by doing. So my first year I covered the gymnastics team, women's gymnastics. They were top ten in the country. Um, then I covered men's ice hockey, then men's basketball. And so you're covering teams that are all in different um, stages or, you know, some are really great or some have, you know, collapsing, collapsed the end of the season or this or that, but they're all nationally relevant. So it sort of prepares you, even though football is obviously on a completely different level um, in terms of eyeballs, but, like, you are covering, like, the best of the best. And if the Michigan hockey team you're covering is a one seed and they get upset in the first round NCAA tournament to Air Force, um, that's a huge story, and, and that's also something I covered. So, it, you know, it's just a really interesting time to um, to do that, and I think that, you know, you're not – I mean, I didn't grow up in Michigan. I didn't grow up a big Michigan fan, so I think it was easier to kind of detach and cover these things more objectively than just like, oh, my gosh, these are the – you know, I've, I've grown up forever rooting for this football team. I can't believe that they're not playing well. Um, it was easier kind of just to analyze it more objectively, which is what, you know, I do now. So I think that, that in that aspect it may have helped a little bit. Um, but it's been, it's been kind of interesting because things have gone well, both uh, football and basketball-wise in recent years. I have gotten some free work trips back to Ann Arbor and gotten to eat some of my favorite foods. So, uh, so that has, has worked out well as the fortunes have turned. There you go. That's always nice. Um, so you kind of kept climbing the ladder at Michigan and, uh, with your summer internships as well. So... What made you stand out, do you think, at a level that made companies that like the Boston Globe and then eventually USA Today notice you and, uh, and bring you on board? Well, you know, I just I, I always worked hard um, to, to get internships, and, and I think that, um, you know, so I, I, I worked at the Trentonian, then I worked at the Cape Cod Times, which was a great internship. You cover baseball, the best college baseball players in the country every day. Um, and then the following summer, I got the USA Today internship, and um, basically, you know, at all those places, and this is advice I give, you know, student journalists all the time, is just don't say no to an assignment. Like, don't, you know, if you're, if you're committing to a, a summer internship, you're not doing it because you want to have your days off. Um, and, and do other things. You're doing it because you want to get the most out of it. And so, you know, I would, you know, always offer to do extra things, never turn down an assignment, never turn down, you know, a day game at Naps Park or whatever, which means you got to be there at like 8 a.m. or whatever. Um, you know, USA Today sent me to the NBA draft. They let me do tennis. They sent me to Boston to do a cover story on the Red Sox. All of these different things just because, you know, I kept, I worked hard. I always offered to do things and then they like the quality level and and so I think you know I was just trying to make the most out of um out of those experiences I could so that like heading into you know the Boston Globe was an internship after my senior year so I was applying for that the fall of my senior year um where I was also freelancing for USA Today Denard Robinson kind of blew up and I wrote a, a cover story on him for them and um you know at the Wall Street Journal ESPN.com and some other places so I had a lot of writing samples. I was constantly, you know, updating my website and my resume and stuff. Um, and, you know, I think that yeah, everyone has to do all that stuff now. You have to, you know, have your own website. You have to learn more skills than just writing. You have to be capable of doing video and social media um, and, and some HTML coding. Um, and so, you know, I was just trying to acquire all of those different skills and being able to share them um, with future employers and so the Globe was, was, was an amazing experience. Um, you know, they, they had seen all that work. They had seen the cover stories at USA Today and not realized they were written by someone who wasn't even 
um, out of college yet. Right. And so, you know, just, you know, we do that, and then you just keep building relationships. So what ended up happening was the end of my summer at the Boston Globe, um, I was looking for full-time jobs. And I was, you know, talking to a few people. Some editors were putting me in touch with places. And then one of my um, old editors at USA Today called about, you know, there was going to be an opening for a digital editor covering college basketball and also blogging about it. And, you know, would I be interested? And because I had kept up my relationships with a couple of editors there and kept in touch throughout the year, um, they thought of me and they wanted to get me in the door. So then, you know, the interview process begins and, and it all goes from there. Um, but it's just it was just so important to me to just kind of keep relationships going and not just like I want to use you to get me a job, just like actually genuinely caring about people um, and then just, you know, genuinely caring about the work. And I think that, you know, I've seen interns who are on all ends of the spectrum of that, um, but I think that the ones who are the most, the hardest working are the ones who, you know, when people tell them, oh, the industry is really difficult right now, they're the ones who get the jobs. Because if you work really hard, have a fresh voice, or creative, um, don't complain. I mean, those are the people that people want to hire. Even if they don't have that many openings, they're going to make room for those people. Sure thing. And it sounds like you obviously had a very diverse uh, experiences off campus. But I'd also like to hear uh, about any stories or interactions that really stood out to you with players or coaches or anyone else on campus in Michigan. Anything that's really stuck out to you uh, to this day that, that happened on campus? You mean like that I covered? Yeah, just like anything that maybe stood out to you. Maybe it could be even a player or coach that um, kind of helped maybe even get to where you were today. Like you said, the Denard Robinson thing was a big a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, that certainly was. Um, so basically that year, the Notre Dame game where you kind of merged on the scene, I think it had 502 total yards in that game. It was actually pretty awesome. So sitting in the press box, we always had four students cover the football team. Um, and we're with our photographer who didn't really know much about sports. And we're sitting in. I filed my story. So I start looking through his photos, and he's got the Heisman pose. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is an amazing photo. So, you know, I show everyone else, and then we show him, and we end up getting that photo on the AP wire for him. Um, and, and then that starts going, you know, it starts circulating. And then I get a call from the college's editor at USA Today asking, like the next day, asking for if I could turn around a story on Monday, they had like the regular availability, um, on, on Denard. Right. And, and so what ends up happening is I have like three hours to do this. And I write it, and it ends up running the next day. It's, it's my story with a photo from our Michigan Daily photographer who, you know, went to the AP, so the AP wire photo on the front page of USA Today's sports section, and we, like, actually hung it up in the daily because it was, like, a very daily front page. Um, and so that was pretty sweet, and that was awesome. Um, and then another thing I'll mention was, you know, I covered Red Berenson for a year when I covered the hockey team, and he had such an interesting approach to um, how he handled the student writers. He would let us come to practice every day, and if we sat through practice, we could talk to him any, every single day. We could sit in his office. Um, and, and pick his brain on any topic. But he just cared that you showed up and that you were there. Like, he didn't care if we were, like, learning that they were working on their power play or sure. that they were doing this line. And I just thought that was such an important lesson about, you know, being a beat writer and really, like, you know, learning things about the team you're covering, the people you see every day that you're getting to know, um, but also just building that relationship with the coach who, who sees that you're putting in the effort um, to be there and to ask questions. And so that was really helpful because, you know, not every sport allows that kind of access, but it was really a great lesson to learn then. So, you know, I think that that was something that was really helpful, you know, moving forward because so much of this is about, you know, relationships and effort and just making sure that people understand that part.
Sure, and I really like that Red Berenson did that because sometimes you see these these videos that go viral of maybe a uh, high-profile coach scolding a student reporter that might have asked right. a silly question. But, you know, like, if, if a coach is taking the time to bring you in and understanding that, that this is important to get his program exposure and also to get the, uh, the student writer experience, that's, that's definitely a valuable thing. So I really like that. Um, but I wanted to get into, since you do have this fantastic platform now at USA Today, um, I wanted to ask you about a line you wrote on your personal website. Um, that's at anhourbach.com. And it says, fewer than a handful of women give opinions about college football on national television. I am one of them. And uh, I read that, and I, I tried to think off the top of my head of other women who are, are called on for uh, interviews and analysis like we have you do and uh, who have more of that analysis role in college football as opposed to calling games or sideline reporting or writing or anchoring. And uh, that sentence made me realize kind of how rare it is for you to be doing what you're doing. So I just wanted to get your opinion on why you think that is that so few women are, are uh, currently in position to analyze college football like you do. Yeah, a dozen was probably very generous <laughs> um, because it's like it's way less than that. Um, and it's something I've always, whenever I talk about Big Ten Network, I've always pointed that out. And I'll get tweets and I'll get Facebook messages about that, how much they appreciate that BTN has put on a female analyst. And it's a male host on the shows that I've been on. It's been Rick Pizzo most years, um, who's fantastic. And they're just like, that's so nice and refreshing. And it's not just because we're talking about domestic violence or, like, issues that they, like, that sometimes people bring on women to talk about. No, we're just talking about football that week or the national scene or the Heisman race. Like, we're just talking regular football. Um, And so I've always appreciated that they do that because I think – you know, I would say, you know, Heather Dinich of ESPN, who is brought on to talk about the playoff and analyze it, but not necessarily give her opinions, um, is, is really the only other one that comes to mind um, that has given that platform to share, to not be the woman asking guys the questions, um, which is a lot of times what we see with women, especially in, in college football and college basketball um, to, to, to lesser extent. With, with men on these shows. So I love that I'm in a position with BTN where I'm an analyst and I can give my opinion on any topic um, and it's given just as much weight as everyone else's. So that's been like a really great experience for me, very eye-opening. It's actually led me to writing um, more columns and being more opinionated in general in my writing as well because, you know, when you're thinking like a reporter and, you know, you want to be even-keeled, have both sides of the stories, and then you realize, you know, as you're planning shows and having, you know, I've been on BTN for three years now, I have opinions that I want to share, and they are unique. And, and so then, you know, also taking that into my writing um, has, been, has been really rewarding and interesting. And, and I think that, you know, part of the reason that there's probably fewer women in, in college football specifically maybe, you know, I'm not sure. Um, I think that, you know, obviously a lot of writers in, in the college sports areas are people who covered college sports, which are, you know, in all sorts of college towns all over. I mean, maybe it's a little bit easier to, or more appealing to want to cover the NBA or, you know, baseball or something where you're, like, in cities most of the time. Um, but, but I think that, you know, there's just, there's just maybe a larger pool of women who are in roles where there are columnists, where they are um, able to give opinion in other sports. And, and in college football, it's just not set up that way right now, at least not on TV. So I really appreciate the opportunity to give my opinion and analysis. And it's kind of, you know, once you start doing that, you notice how few women get to do that sort of thing. So you don't want to, so you want to certainly appreciate it. Um, 
you know, and make sure that you are doing your homework and that you are well-informed and making good points um, because it is a little bit of a rarity. And like I said, it's, it's, really, it's really cool when you get a lot of messages from people saying that they, like, really appreciate BTN doing that. And so, you know, I actually usually, you know, Carol Lawson's doing, you know, a halftime show for, for an ESPN men's college basketball game. I'll, you know, tweet out, you know, messages of support for that too because, you know, you've got to, you know, kind of promote things when things are rare and, and you hope that they become less rare. Right, and I think, I think the realization that I had kind of highlighted that issue. Like, I work in sports media, and it was still kind of surprising to me realizing that I couldn't name a few, more than like a few women off the top of my head that are in your position. So yeah. I'm sure many just general fans don't even recognize the lack of women that are in your position since they're so used to men giving those opinions. Yeah, I, and, I, and I think that that's why, like, you know, it sticks out. Or even, like, you know, people will talk about Doris Burke, like, Doris is fantastic, but there should be more Doris Burks by now, you know, so it's like there's, it's such a double-edged sword when people point out, you know, like, oh, the lone woman doing something, or the first woman doing something on sports TV, well, that's great, and you love that there is that, you you also want there to be more, and so that's the harder part, because, you know, a lot of that comes decision makers, and um, experience, and kind of just going with it, and giving people a shot, and so... It's, it's a lot of different factors, I think, at play, but, um, but I'm really fortunate that I've had that opportunity because I think once you get that experience, like I said, I mean, then you're like, okay, I like, pretty much only want to give my opinion. Like, I don't want to just ask. I'm not just going to ask the guys for their <laughs> opinions from now on. Like, I've got things I want to say, too. Absolutely. And uh, do you think that's a trend that's improving, that you think more women are going to be in your position soon? Because, I mean, personally, I love what, uh, what Jessica Mendoza has brought to – ESPN's mm-hmm. baseball coverage, and like you said, Doris Burke, um, Michelle Beadle also has, has gotten involved, and Sage Steele kind of set that stage as well. Um, so do you think that's a trend that's improving, and, and what do you think are still some of those barriers that uh, need to be overcome? Yeah, I think it is improving. I mean, obviously you've noticed, we've all noticed as a whole that, you know, a lot of sports networks are going more towards opinion, um, you know, and reactions and kind of an, anal- analyzing news versus just straight here's the news and the highlights um and so i think like rachel nichols is a perfect example i love rachel and totally admire her and i think that she's given a show and a platform where she can share her thoughts she can do monologues she can bring on guests she can talk about whatever she wants um is is like really encouraging um you know she's really really sharp and when she says something it matters in the nba world in the sports world Um, And so I love that she's given that platform to do that. So I do think, you know, with the rise of more opinion-based shows or just like that that opinion is more of uh, the fabric in any type of programming, Um, you know, obviously with Katie Nolan and what she's done at Fox Sports 1 and 2, you know, I think that it's just showing that there's lots of different ways for, for, for women in sports to get, um, opinion out there and not just be kind of pigeonholed as sideline reporters or hosts on different shows. Um, even the women like, who, who are hosts on shows are able to inject their opinions more and, and be more involved in, in the debates and conversations. So I am encouraged. I think that they're, because the industry is in flux right now and there's so many different ways that people are kind of coming through it or coming up and around and um, twisting and turning, like, I think that, that that probably does open it up from different paths of um, of getting to different places that all kind of have the same the outcome, which is, you know, giving women a voice on different issues. And like I said, not just ones that seem to affect women, um, like a domestic like bringing someone on to talk about domestic violence or the Baylor scandal or something like that, but just everyday topics, like the fact that Rachel Nichols hosts an NBA show every day of the year. I mean, it's, it's, it's basketball-based. And, and so I think that that 
is really encouraging and really cool. And I think that the more that women are put in these positions, then you've got a lot more people who are going through college or growing up wanting to be in those positions and then you just continue to kind of have a pool of people who are striving for those jobs absolutely yeah i really uh, enjoy rachel nichols show and uh i also like what jamel hill has done with michael smith and, yeah. and hosting the six and all that but uh while, while we're kind of talking sports industry trends and espn specifically i did want to get your thoughts on the recent uh widespread layoffs at that network and um also if you think that the trickle-down effects from an event like that could eventually have some sort of impact on college sports down the road because we see how big of an impact TV money has and how its fingerprints are all over college athletics with facilities and coaches' salaries and high athletic department budgets. So do you think with the way the TV industry seems to be going, can schools keep getting richer and, and spending all this money, or do you think the events of, of uh, or at ESPN a couple weeks ago were kind of a signal that some changes could be coming at some point to uh, – college athletics yeah I am I'm, I'm pretty interested and in obviously watching it very closely um, as all this you know as we do kind of see the aftermath um, I lost a lot of great colleagues um, to those layoffs it, you know they really obviously hit college sports reporting hard yeah. and so it's really it was it was devastating to see a lot of those people um, be included in those layoffs and and you can't help but look at, you know, obviously the deals with different leagues and, and, and partnerships and, and how much ESPN paid for that and then, you know, people cutting cable. Like, I'm pretty sure I'm, of my close friends, I'm the only one that has cable and it's because I watch live sports. Yep. Um, so I totally understand and see that trend in real life. Um, but So I am curious to see what that means for negotiations next time around with certain leagues and, and what that means for other networks and competitors. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to watch because we've seen newspaper industry and magazines go through similar things, right? When you think that newspapers, that the classified section is always going to be there to bring in money and right. subscriptions are always going to be there, and then you have the Internet. And so, you know, it was difficult to see it can go through this because, you know, you, you always think that they were going to be a little bit more isolated from issues that the rest of us were dealing with, you know, and with the print product. Um, but, you know, so, so I'm very curious to see kind of how ESPN adapts, how negotiations adapt, how all of this stuff affects. I think in terms of your second question about college athletics specifically and kind of the resources, the salaries and all that, you know, from everyone I talked to in college sports about that aspect specifically, they're waiting to see the results of legislation, of, of, um, of court cases involving student, athlete, name, image, and likeness, um, and, and just sort of, you know, unionization and all those different issues that are kind of like percolating around, and there's, there's obviously ongoing cases um, that the NCAA is involved in. They're, they said all of that is going to affect college athletics. That's what they're waiting on for the shoe to drop on, just to see how that stuff gets resolved and what that means for for college sports. And so, um, you know, I think it's a combination of all of that 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 we're going to see some maybe some drastic changes in this landscape in the next five ten years because all of that will be coming kind of to a head around the same time as this whole cable situation is figured out as well. So, I, you know, I'm just kind of in wait and see mode. But it's certainly a very unique time. Obviously, and you still have newspapers and magazines and print products that are still struggling and having issues. Um, but yet, you know, people want to consume sports news columns. They want to consume all sorts of things. Um, so it's it just it's it's such an interesting time. But um, I'm kind of just sitting on the couch, you know, making popcorn and, and <laughs> trying to watch and see, figure out what's going to happen next. Right. And uh, I mean, those college 
sports fan bases will always be there. So I don't, I don't think that's a concern that college sports will go away. But I agree it is going to be interesting to kind of uh, to see what, what unfolds here in the next decade or so. Um, mm-hmm. And also, I think we can agree that the Big Ten is in good shape in that regard as well. Um, they're very relevant in both football and basketball right now. They have a uh, couple major markets cornered and a good swath of the country cornered TV-wise. And I think we're kind of seeing the results of that as a uh, having the resources to kind of go out and hire big-name coaches and, and build facilities and really continue to go all in and, and commit to these sports as academic institutions. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I very much agree. Um, you know, the Big Ten, obviously, in terms of, like, TV, like, revenue perspective, totally in fine shape. But coaches, you know, Big Ten football, I think, has really – it's just so funny to think about a few years ago that one night where Michigan lost to Notre Dame, Ohio State lost to Virginia Tech, and Michigan State lost to Oregon, and everyone said, you know, the Big Ten's fallen behind and blah, blah, blah. Um, of course, Ohio State goes on to win the national championship, but it's just amazing to see um, the entire conference elevate and, and the way that they've been hiring football coaches in particular elevate the the whole league and kind of right up there at the top of college football. And, um, you know, I always say, you know, everyone loves to get in those debates about, like, is the SEC the best conference? Well, you know, for the last couple of years, it's been one great team and then a the huge drop-off. Sure. And the Big Ten has, you know, the top is stronger. There's more teams. There's interesting personalities. Like, it's just been very interesting to cover these last few years. And, and I think that, you know, if, you, if you're going to say the greatest coaches currently in the game are Saban, Meyer, and then you could put Harbaugh on there, I mean, you got two of those in one league. And it just, it, it's just it, the Big Ten, I think, is very well positioned for this coming season, moving forward. Um, it's got all the things that you want as a fan of college football, as a fan of college sports, you know, great coaches, teams that are going to win, great tradition. Um, and like you said, yes, markets are cornered. You know, they're, you know, obviously done a ton of effort to expand on the big, on the East Coast um, and all that. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad you shared your perspective on that because I feel like I'm so focused on the Big Ten and I see them hiring these coaches and upgrading facilities. And I'm, I wonder if I'm biased and if, the other conferences are also upgrading at that pace. But I'm glad you kind of confirmed that uh, for me because, I mean, it started obviously with, uh, I mean, Urban Meyer came in and then mm-hmm. Michigan got Harbaugh. And then now you see some schools that haven't had as much success in the past are trying to keep up. Like you got your Minnesota's hiring D.J. Fleck and Northwestern is really buying in, committing long-term to athletics by uh, signing Fitzgerald and Chris Collins to long-term deals. Illinois brought in Lovey Smith, and um, we see these schools making splashy hires and, and just having massive facility upgrades to try and compete. So, I, yeah, I agree. I think it positions the conference well in the long run, and um, especially in college football, if you have such good coaches and such good buy-in from donors and from the institutions themselves, I think uh, the Big Ten is really in good shape. So, Yeah, and I think, I mean, facility-wise, yeah, like a lot of, you know, it's keeping up with the Joneses, and certain leagues are a little bit more aggressive on that than others. Cough, Oregon is sure. <laughs> obviously setting a standard in the Pac-12. Right. Um, but, yeah, no, the Big Ten has had huge facility upgrades. I mean, Michigan, since I left, have like they renovated the entire stadium, yeah. put in those video boards. Chrysler looks like a completely new arena. The Player Development Center is fantastic. They're redoing more football facilities. Um, you know, Rutgers is, is even, you know, going to do – um, they're kind of going to upgrade their facilities finally, you know, and they've made some great coaches on the basketball and football side. So it's, you know, it's, it's really, um, it's, it's been really interesting. I mean, Jeff Brom, uh, 
Purdue is a great hire. It was just, you know, it's been the last couple off seasons. These, the Big Ten ADs have done a really good job of, you know, even positioning some of the schools that you wouldn't think are necessarily maybe going to be contenders in their division, but they're going to be a lot better, and they're going to they're going to have better facilities. There's going to be a lot more excitement about it. They're investing in these programs, um, and you never know what's going to happen. But I think that it is certainly happening, um, you know, in the Big Ten more than it is elsewhere in, in certain ways. Um, and, and I think it's happening more across the board. And, and so, you know, I think that that sets the league up very well for the, for the coming years. Definitely. And I guess if you had to nitpick um, one issue that kind of has sprung out of that success, I think, is the, uh, the relative imbalance of the Big Ten East and West divisions of football. Because when you have Penn State, Michigan, and Ohio State all on one side of, of, the, uh, of the map, you kind of run the risk of only one of three potentially deserving teams making the college football playoff. And we saw that play out this past year because those three teams were all in the discussion. And I just wanted to get your opinion. Is this a, is this a big problem? Is um, a realignment coming, do you think, down the road? Or do you think that competition is kind of good for the conference overall? Well, you know, I, I actually, my opinions on this have kind of changed over the years and kind of changed even throughout last year. Um, because I, I think it is, I remember joking when, um, you know, Rutgers hired Chris Ash and Maryland hired DJ Durkin. It's like, you know, those were really good hires, I thought, but you're also, like, fighting, like, a good year is fourth place in the in the Big Ten East because it's a league with Michigan, Ohio State, Penn State, and Michigan State. And, um, you know, so, so that's just, those are just tough jobs because of that. But I sort of think that what we're going to see, and we'll see how it works out with the Big 12 because the Big 12 is re-implementing their championship game, and because they're only a 10 10-member league, they have a round robin, so it's going to be the two best teams will play each other, um, which I think sets up best because you don't run the risk of, you know, let's say one of your divisions is way weaker and you upset, you know, the best team in your conference or your best team in your conference got edged out by a tiebreaker scenario, wasn't even playing in the championship game, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So I would love to see, um, you know, some sort of scheduling protections, certain rivalries, et cetera, et cetera, but... At the end of the that the at the end of the regular season, the two best teams play each other because um, then it gives you an extra opportunity for a meaningful um, marquee win in the committee's eyes. Um, obviously, it also puts your best team at risk of losing if you're playing the best the second best team. But I like that idea. I don't know if that would ever happen with the Big Ten, um, but that's just my take on it generally. I think um, you know divisions make a lot of sense for scheduling purposes in a lot of sports and in a lot of areas, but. Um, you know, with football and just what's at stake with getting one of those four playoff spots, I think that I think we'll see. And you know, it'll take a few years to see how it works with the Big Twelve. Um, but I think the idea of, of making sure that your two best teams play each other um, in the final game is 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 a good one. And and so I'm hopeful that more leagues will eventually start thinking, or at least thinking about that idea, um, and in resituating the way that they determine the teams that go to the championship game. Um, but that's just me, and you know I have no idea if that's gonna that's gonna come about. But that's that's what I'd like to see. Um, you know, if it if it ends up looking good or working out for the Big Twelve, then maybe everyone else will consider it. Yeah, that's interesting. And personally, I I would prefer a uh, eight team college football playoff just to kind of eliminate some of the unfairness or potential deserving teams getting left out. But um, I did want to kind of shift to the Heisman Trophy focus because you you are a Heisman Trophy voter, correct? Yes. All right, so I have to ask you, uh, who out of the Big Ten do you think is capable of contending for the Heisman next season? Because I look at Penn State, and I see a couple players on that yep. roster who could who could be in the running, but I, I wanted to get your thoughts on that. 
Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, you know, I'd probably give the edge, like an early edge to like Saquon Barkley just because, you know, I feel like he's going to put up monster numbers for them. Um, but I also, you know, I think A.T. Barrett's going to be interesting because, you know, obviously, and it feels like forever ago, but he finished fifth in the Heisman voting um, the year that he, you know, broke his ankle at, at the end of the Michigan, in the Michigan game, and then, you know, Cardell Jones came in, and they win the national championship. But he had an amazing year that year, and then, you know, you've had uncertainty at the position, and, and you have all these strange things. He's had such a strange career um, at Ohio State, but you've got to think that, you know, if he can get that last year, you know, obviously he could run, but, you know, if he can get the passing game going and more consistent, he's going to be around playmakers and he's going to be in that conversation just like he was last year until it kind of fell off towards the end. But I think, you know, I think people are really high on Penn State coming off of um, off of the way they finished last year and, and the Rose Bowl, and I think that Saquon Barkley is going to be very, very high on people's lists to start the year. JT Barrett's one of those guys who just seems like he's been around forever. I swear he's been there for 10 years but yeah. uh we've gotten to a lot of great college football stuff but i definitely have to sneak a college hoops question in before we wrap this up because i'm a i'm big college hoops guy so um you've done some great work at the last few national championship basketball games and uh as everyone knows the big 10 has had a pretty long national championship drought not having won one since uh michigan state in 2000 so do you think this is anything more than just a fluke, or do you think this is something more, or is it a, a pattern that you think came out of some sort of issue the last couple of decades? Well, you know, I think the the current era of college basketball is so strange right now with, um, with the way that people are approaching the one-and-done era. Um, we've seen teams that have won national championships with, like, three one-and-done guys on the same roster as starters and just kind of put – a couple of veteran guys around them, and the and the and the chemistry worked. Um, you know, we, and then we've seen teams that have been no one and duns and no draft picks. Last two uh, national championship teams and UNC and Villanova. You know, no none of those flashy freshman types, and and just a lot of veteran great college players that maybe not everyone's going to go pro. Right. Um, and so it's sort of it. It just seems like you know it's it's hard to predict. Um, you know, it's embarrassing to look back at uh, preseason Final Four predictions sometimes because <laughs> of that. Because you're you're guessing on the teams that are going to be freshman laden, like the, the Kansases and Kentuckys and Dukes each year. Um, and then you're trying to figure out, you know, if a team like a, like a Michigan Michigan State will be very highly ranked, and people will be talking about them entering next year. Um, because especially when you get a guy who could be a one and done, and they come back then you're getting a little bit more of a known quantity, and you know what to expect. You expect them to take a huge growth between the freshman and sophomore season. So you're expecting a lot of Miles Bridges, and then you've got other veteran pieces around them. So I think that that's kind of a really good, um, you know, recipe for success. Um, but, uh, you know, Tom Izzo's taken a variety of different types of teams to, like, the Final Four. Um, and, you know, so much of it comes down to coaching. So much of it comes down to these individual matchups in a one-and-done tournament. Um, Michigan, my alma mater, you know, they came super close a few years back, yeah. um, losing to Louisville, you know, with the block that, you know, my, my friends will still, I think they all have it saved on their phone and they'll use it at any time that <laughs> something happens to Louisville. They immediately tweet it. Um, they will never, they will never forgive that call. But, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, the Big Ten's been right up there and I think the coaches are, are great. Um, it's actually one of my favorite leagues in terms of coaches to, you know, interact with on the recruiting trail or catch up with, um, 
you know, across the board. So, so I, you know, I don't think it's anything in particular. Um, it's not like you could point to like, oh, recruiting in Chicago or something like that. It's, it's, it's just a strange, um, you know, era of the sport. And, and they're also in the midst of, you know, changing rules and trying to get it to be less physical and trying to get it to be, um, you know, more offense-friendly. And, and so there's just a lot of different pe- moving pieces right now um, that I think that I think that people will adapt to. And, um, you know, there's a lot of really great coaches in the league. And, like, Chris Collins has already broken through at Northwestern, gotten them to the tournament, you know, and they, they sign him on for, for the long term. And, you know, I just think that that all of that, all of these little pieces help as as these coaches are trying to figure out how to win big in an era where there's so many transfers, there's so many um, guys who think they're one and done, <laughs> the ones that are, the yeah. ones that leave early and shouldn't, and and you're just dealing with a lot of moving pieces. Yeah, and I don't think you can point to any one thing really. Like you said, a lot of Big Ten teams have come close. You've had Michigan, um, Indiana, and Illinois reached it. And Michigan State's been back there as well. So I just think it's more of a fluke than anything that one of those teams hasn't broken through at some point in the last 17 years or so. Yeah. But um, anyway, just one last thing before I let you go, especially since you went to Michigan. Um, I definitely want to touch on the international trip that Michigan just got back from when they went to Rome with the entire football team. Um, I have to say I was pretty impressed by all of the cultural experiences that were included and what seemed like the, uh, the meticulous planning that really went into each day especially since it seemed like um, Jim Harbaugh was pretty much directly planning all those activities and events. So do you think more schools are going to follow suit um, with these international trips? And if they do, do you think it will be kind of exclusive for the top dogs in college football, or do you think it can be something that uh, a lot of Power 5 schools can pull off? Well, you know, there, there's two ways to answer that. I mean, right now, basketball teams are able to take foreign trips, um, you know, and, and there's certain restrictions on how frequently they can take them. And they do do cultural aspects of these trips, and they're very good team bonding experiences. You get extra practices, um, and they prove to be very helpful. Um, so there could be a way to do it where you regulate it. But when Jim Harbaugh does things, and he does things big, as we saw with his satellite camps, um, people tend to react strongly yep. and try to limit things. So I am unsure if this will like continue to be a trend just because of that. And and I think that they went so big. I mean, they met the Pope. I don't know how they did that, but they met the Pope. <laughs> Ridiculous. And so, um, yes, it was a huge, huge trip. It cost a lot of money. There was some football advantages, but no, it was, it's a huge recruiting cell and it's a really cool cultural experiences for all, for all the players there. I've been to Rome. It's amazing. And like, that would be an amazing trip to go on with like, you know, your buddies and, and to do a little bit of football, but mostly get to like learn a lot about Rome and sightsee and stuff. Um, I, I do think that, you know, as with anything Jim Harbaugh does, that's, you know, pushing at the, the limits of, you know, the NCAA rules that people will take a closer look at it and see if, if it's something that should be allowed or not. Um, but like I said, basketball does do similar things already. Obviously it's a much smaller, um, group that's going smaller on these team trips. and every, um, every four years, I think, right? Yeah. And it's also a smaller team, um, you know, and it's, you know, it's not as, there's not as much hoopla around it cause it's not. Jim Harbaugh. Right. Um, so, so I think we'll take a look at it. I think that um, it probably will not become a thing that everyone does, um, but I think that it was certainly creative, um, very cool, and it also worked out well enough for Michigan because Michigan ends so early um, in April that they were actually, everyone at first was calling it a spring break trip, but no, like spring break for Michigan mm-hmm. is in February. They're done, it's right? actually yeah. like after school. So, 
you know, it sort of worked out timing-wise for that. But, um, yeah, I mean, if I had to say, are other schools going to do this and meet the Pope, I'm going to say no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it definitely has to be just an incredible recruiting tool. And when those images and videos were being fed back to us here for us to share, I mean, it just looked like the team, the coaches, and everyone involved was just having the time of their lives, and it looked like a, an incredible time. And yeah. and honestly, I mean, if a donor is willing to pay for it, like like at Michigan, I don't really see any downside to continue to uh, do these things in the future. Um like you said, as long as the NCAA doesn't crack down on it, I think um, it's it's a good thing as long as it's paid for and they're not missing any uh, any school time. So, yeah, I agree. Yeah, we'll see. Well, Nicole, that's all I got for you today. Um, I want to thank you so much for for joining me, and we'll continue to follow your great work at USA Today and enjoy your contributions here at BTN as well. All right, thanks so much for having me. Once again, thanks to Nicole Auerbach for joining us, and thanks to all of you out there who listen. I promise to get guests involved in each and every Big Ten school as we roll along here, so be on the lookout soon for our next episode on iTunes and SoundCloud, which will be easy to remember if you uh, subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. So until next time, for my producer Wes White, I'm Alex Rue of BTN.com. Talk to you soon.